is probably the furthest that you can get from your typical Western quote unquote culture, you know, Western world culture. And what was difficult from a Japanese speaking perspective and comprehension perspective was all of the honorific uh, business discussion. Basically, I would say the only, one of the only, if not the only person that I've managed to really stay close with after my time in Japan, which is a shame to say. Like I said, it was difficult to make friends there. Hello, everyone. My name is Adu, and this is Expats Exposed. Honest conversations with expats around the globe. This podcast is brought to you by ReadyGo Expat. For videos about life in different countries, interviews with expats and travel guides, go to youtube.com forward slash ReadyGoExpat. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today, we're here with David McNeil. He is uh, from the US, but he currently lives in Porto, Portugal. Today, he's going to be talking about his experience living in Japan um the what why he, he got to japan why he uh, decided to go to japan but also uh his experience there culture shock and everything else hey david how are you hey great to be here thanks a lot for having me on your show my pleasure my pleasure so uh david let's start uh first of all like where are you from talk about your background and then how you eventually got to japan Sure. I'll try not to keep it too long. <laughs> uh, there's definitely a lot to, that I can go into there. So I'm happy to give some more detail if it's helpful. But yeah, as you mentioned, I was born and raised in the United States. I didn't really move around outside the country too much growing up, um, but we did move inside the country a lot. So I guess that gave me a bit of a taste for adventure. Um, and I got an interest in studying Japanese, uh, the language, when I was about 12 years old, actually, that's when I started. So I was interested in Japanese culture, the animation, the video games, all the fun stuff that was popular when I was growing up. I watched Dragon Ball Z and I got way more into it than my friends. <laughs> so uh, it was a natural, it felt to me almost natural to start studying the language. And, you know, I was interested in, in the cultural elements. So I got a book and cassette tape set. Yes, a cassette, not a CD. And I went through that every day for the following like nine months after I got that. And uh, I went through this like three month course twice, but very slowly, very thoroughly. And then uh, I was actually at that time when I was 12 and doing that course, or when I started it anyway, I was in Mobile, Alabama with my family. And then we moved all the way to Los Angeles, California. So big culture sh change or shock within the United States but it also opened the door to a lot of other opportunities to practice and use and learn Japanese. So I started taking after school classes, uh, high school classes, even when I was in the eighth grade. So in middle school there, I was the youngest student, but um, I was uh, studying pretty hard. So um, I was happy to be able to take part in that. And then I did immersion programs and speech contests and working with tutors. And it just very quickly became a big passion of mine. So I did that. And I finally visited Japan when I was 17. So um, I went with this basically study program and a bit of homestay and traveling around with other high school students. And it was just amazing. It was, you know, I had dreamed about Japan for five years by then studying Japanese really hard and just taking up all the cultural elements and, and all that stuff and just to be there in the middle of it was incredible. So I came back from that trip and I thought, okay, this is, this is definitely the thing I, as I thought it was. So now I went to university and I thought I would study business to do something more that I could do abroad and also Japanese as well. I had 
the ability to uh, test it into the higher level classes already. So I was able to double major in the new. And then I took my second trip to Japan when I was 19 with a friend and we traveled around for a month again. And it was, again, incredible. And I came back from that and I thought, I want to come back to Japan, but next time, not as a tourist, as someone living here. I thought this is the place that I want to be. And I'm kind of tired of just seeing it on the surface. I want to get a little deeper. So I thought I would start out from university from after graduating to start out working in Japan. Unfortunately, that opportunity didn't arise. I tried many different routes to make it happen. It just didn't happen. So I then thought, okay, I'm coming out with a finance degree. Let me do the best thing I can do with a, as a finance major graduating in 2010, which was coming out of the crisis and all of that, the financial crisis. But uh, luckily, many investment banks were hiring at the time, and that was the thing to do as a finance major. So I started my career there. And um, really, I found out it wasn't for me very quickly, this finance world, but it took me a couple years and a move to San Francisco to be able to get into the tech, tech career, basically working as a product manager. Um, and so I know I'm rambling a bit, so I'll try to get to the point. In this, uh, in this job, this first job as a product manager, I was able to, about six months into the role, I had the opportunity to go to Beijing. And of course, that's not Japan, which was my goal, but it was an opportunity to go abroad and to work abroad for three months. So I immediately said, yes, please send me. It was either going to be Beijing or Vancouver. And I said, either one is fine. <laughs> I don't care. I haven't, I had been to Beijing once. Um, I'd actually studied abroad in Singapore in university and I had visited China, but I thought, yeah, Vancouver would be cool or Beijing. Great. So I went to Beijing. Uh, they needed more people there. And I came back really geared up on moving to China. Basically, I was like, we came back three months later. I told them, please send me back. And for longer, like one week into that trip to Beijing, working there, I was uh, studying Chinese. I was like, okay, China's the future. You know, maybe that's what everyone's been telling me and I can't seem to make Japan work. So I came back from that experience and about one month after returning, I got laid off. So that was Whoa. not expected. <laughs> and uh, that was a huge disappointment because literally the night before I got the news that I was being laid off in America, if they lay you off, it's the same day. Like I had 30 minutes to get out of the office. But the night before I had been told by my boss at the time, yes, we're going back to China in like two months. So I went home on a Thursday night thinking I'm going back to China in a couple of months for like a year or something like that. And then the next morning I found out that I was being laid off. So the whole vision of the future in China disappeared in front of my eyes, but I thought, you know, I'm not going to let any company decide where I'm going to go, where I'm going to live. My passion is for being abroad and being in Beijing brought that back to me after laying dormant for a couple of years in, in the banking career. So I traveled around Europe and while I did that, as I basically took the opportunity since I was unemployed, traveled around Europe. And while I did that, I was taking interviews in China and Japan. And again, long, very long story short, I got the offer to go to Japan following that trip. I had the last interview on my last day of the trip, went back to the US and got the offer. And then about three months after that, I moved to Tokyo. So this was in the end of July of 2014. So moved to Tokyo, started working there and happy to talk about my experiences. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> like um, when you told me, when you said about the, uh, that you were laid off, it, it sounds like uh, when we watch like some American movies and then the, the guy just put, or the, the woman just puts everything in the box and literally like leaves the office and everybody is staring at the person like, 
you know, leaving the office. Yes. That's crazy. This is, because, this is a, a, exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's yeah. Because for me, that's like movies. It's 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 funny. Right. Like it, it's not. I, I mean, I've never seen that happen here. Like so. But yeah, I know. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Um, and then you said that you always had like when you were twelve, you started trying to learn Japanese and stuff, and that you always had this. Um, and then since then, Dragon Ball Z, um, tech, uh, uh, cartoons and stuff, and that's that you're like you know, this uh, fascination, I don't know, about Japan. And I've heard that before. That's so interesting. Even when I was in China, I had a friend from Italy, a friend from Spain, and another friend from Mexico. They all said the same thing. They're like, I need to go to Japan. Like, I need to. <laughs> uh, one of them actually spent like uh, three months in Japan for an internship. It was my Italian friend or six mm. months, I don't remember. Um, and then I asked because I'm dying to go to Japan. So I was like, is it really all of that? Because like we hear about Japan here and it's like, yeah, it's something. Um, and then the, I think the only country that is, I'm not going to say similar, but it's like that I've heard a lot before in Asia is South Korea. And they do that. It's different. It's a bit different. It's with K-pop and everything. So I, right. I, have a, I had a lot of students here, like teenagers who were like learning Korean, just like you, like right. teenager right. learning Korean. They're like, I want to go to Korea and stuff. I'm just saying this because it's very interesting because for China, it's what you said, like the economy, like we hear mm -hmm. about like all the changes development in China, but Japan and Korea, it's kind of another thing, you know? So I'm really Yeah, I really want to know more about Japan, of course. Um, and I really, like, my plan was actually to go to Japan. Uh, mm. I was in China. It was, it was super easy to get a, a visa, like a tourist visa. So I was planning to go for, like, two weeks. But then um, I couldn't. I had to leave China, the pandemic and everything. Right. Um, so uh, when you got to, Ch so you lived in Tokyo. Is that right? Right. Yeah, yes, yes. Okay. Is, was that the only city you lived in Japan? Yeah, I lived there for two years in the end. Okay, so Tokyo is, I mean, is going to host the Olympics like in a couple of months. <laughs> right. Uh, I, think it, I think they will. I don't, I don't even know that. That's, uh, that's the plan. That's the plan. <laughs> that's the plan. Tokyo 2020, 2021. So um, can, can you tell us about, about Tokyo? What is it like? I mean, there is, um, yeah, there's high expectation with the Olympics there. Of course, that's what people are talking about and stuff. But is it the most expensive city in Japan? I guess I don't have the numbers, you know, in front of me in terms of comparing that exactly, but I would have to guess that it is. If not one of, then it must be uh, the, the highest uh, cost of living there. It is, uh, I would put it this way. I think people, especially when they tour and travel to Japan, they really get a sense that it's extremely expensive. And I think the reason for that is probably, well, number one, there's a bit of that mentality back from the 80s when Japan was extremely expensive. I mean, it was like a huge bubble that has since burst in the 90s, and they're still kind of feeling the reverberations of that today. However, um, I think the real estate, of course, especially if you look at it on a per square foot or square meter basis, it's extremely expensive. This is, this is without a doubt the case. It would be hard to find three-bedroom, four-bedroom flats in the middle of Tokyo that is going to be affordable. I mean, it's definitely going to be... Um, Yeah, you'd have to move outside the city quite a bit or get a, a big contract and a company to help you make that happen. Um, so I would not, uh, I would say, yeah, people who have to pay for hotel every night, if they don't go to the capsule hotels, which people might have heard of, or some of these situations where it's a really small room, even a literal capsule that you 
sleep in, which I've done that. And it's not that much fun, but it's an interesting experience. <laughs> um, if you're not doing that and you're going to a normal hotel, it will add up. This is for sure. However, you can find some reasonably priced uh, flats there long-term. And certainly if you go just outside the downtown area, I was in the center of kind of the downtown uh, area. My work was in Shibuya, which is where that famous intersection the, is yeah. from loss in translation. So I, I mean, I was, you know, 10 minute walk from there in terms of the office. And I was probably 30 minute walk from the office to where I was living, which was in a, a very nice area. So I was, I was fortunate. I was definitely fortunate to find this flat. However, it was extremely small and extremely expensive. So if I'm really thankful to be honest that I'm not living in that flat right now in the midst of this pandemic, because it was only, I, I, I got it with the mentality that I wouldn't be spending much time there, that I'd always be out and about exploring. So I think trying to work and live in that, you know, permanently during a, during a pandemic would be a challenge. But uh, I think the housing and, and so on is very expensive. However, the daily costs I mean, you can get an incredible bowl of ramen or whatever. I, I love Japanese food and I know a lot of other people out there do as well. You can get incredible food for seven, eight dollars. Uh, you know, you can get a lunch meal, a business lunch meal at whatever uh, izakaya, whatever little restaurant for the same price or less, you know, 500 yen or 700 yen. Um, you can do it expensively. <laughs> That's the thing. It, it depends what people want to go for. So it's hard to give a broad overview of the cost of living there. However, I think it it can definitely work for people that live there as long as you're not going crazy every night doing everything that Tokyo has to offer. So um, you kind of have to feel it out for yourself. But I was fortunate in another sense to come in from the US where I was making a good salary. Again, not an incredible salary in the United States. I was still early in my career, but I was coming from San Francisco. I was working for a tech company, even at an entry-level salary, it was pretty good. So while I had to take a pay cut, certainly to go to Tokyo, I still didn't have to take as much of one as I might have had to if I didn't have this previous salary in the US saying, hey, help me out here, you know, make 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 the deal easy for me to agree to, even though internally, I knew that I was going to, you know, try to go to Japan. That was my big goal. So um, anyway, probably a lot of information and nuggets for people to take out from that. But that was just my overall view on the cost of living there. And just just living in Tokyo is incredible. I mean, so many small little side streets, so much to explore. Great bars, great food. Uh, nightlife is awesome. You know, museums. What I love there is going to the art museums. Obviously, that's in most big cities as well. So Tokyo is not specific for that. But I just felt like there was always more to explore. And while I've come to really love the place I live now. It's it's very small little town compared to the massive metropolis of Tokyo. So it took some adjusting in a different life stage, I think. But at the time being, I believe when I went there, I was 26. Um, man, I was I was having a ball. It was the best. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. You you said that uh, the cost of living like rent. Um, you lived in a very nice place, uh, small but very, you know, centrally located. And, and so you said that rent was, uh, is the most expensive thing, right? Uh, right. But yeah. what about groceries and transportation? Like, I'm, I, I assume that you didn't have a car there because you right. know, the, the subway system and, and stuff in Tokyo is amazing. I mean, that's what I've heard. So can you tell yeah. me about a bit about like groceries, transport, and maybe, I don't know, health insurance, any other costs you might have? 
Yeah, let me think back to it a bit. So I probably won't have exact numbers for you, but in general, yeah, I I personally haven't lived uh, with a car since I was in high school. So even in the United States, even when I was working here, I tried to live more centrally and be able to walk or use buses and things like that. Naturally in Japan, as everyone knows, the railway is incredible. So yeah. getting around the city is very easy, many options. It's coming constantly. Of course, you might have to squeeze your way in, but um that's just part of the overall experience and it might get, it might get tiring over time, but at first it's, it's just a, just an experience. I actually felt a bit though, like I was getting, going a little crazy with being on the trains because you're just underground for long periods of time, you know, from this train to that train. And so that was also not that everyone gets the opportunity, but being able to walk to work, even if it took 30 minutes, I really appreciated that because it gave me an opportunity just to get a little exercise and to be outside. So I think you can go a little nuts if you're <laughs> having to ride the train, even if it's so efficient for every day for an hour plus or whatever it might be, which, which a lot of people do to commute into Tokyo. Um, so in terms of some of the other costs, mostly, yeah, to be honest, I love Japanese food and I'm not much of a cook. So I was mostly eating out uh, and also, you know, trying to go out with friends and things like that. So I would usually try to get something around the corner. And there were so many great restaurants there that even when I went back the last time in 2019, most recently, it was just, yeah, going to my old favorite spots. And like I said, it can be 500 yen, 700 yen, up to a thousand yen, which is probably, I don't know what that is in the exact exchange rate now, but let's say eight euros or some up to eight euros for some incredible food. Uh, on the health insurance side, I was working for a company, so I didn't, I don't think I had to pay too much specifically for that. I can't remember what, if any, was taken out of my paycheck. But in general, the way that it works there is that the state or the company, you know, effectively somebody else is paying 70% and you're typically paying 30% of the costs. So that tends to be how, how it works, depending on what exactly that you need. But I think that's in general how it works. And the company that I was working for, I think they also paid a little bit of extra. I don't know how much for additional service in English, because of course, mm -hmm. knowing, I mean, I did speak Japanese, but still when you get very technical and, uh, on, on going to a, a healthcare appointment, it, it helps to have a doctor there to explain it to you in English or give you English documentation instead of a Japanese printout. And yeah, like I said, I'm, you know, people are probably thinking about going to the, the place that I dream of, what Jiro dreams of sushi, I think it's called, is that movie, the documentary where people are thinking about having this amazing sushi. You know, I would go to the, um, to the conveyor belt sushi and just get some plates there for you know, 15 euros and I was just completely stuffed. So you can, you can go pretty crazy with your expenses there. But for me, it was important to also leave money for travel. And I mean, that's, that's been a big part of my life and everywhere that I've lived, I've tried to budget around travel. So maybe on a day-to-day -day basis, I wouldn't spend too crazy in Tokyo. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, it is the image that I had that, uh, that I still have that Tokyo is super expensive, not only Tokyo, but Japan. Uh, travel around Japan and stuff, um, but one of the one of the the reasons why I actually didn't go to Japan when I was in China is that uh, it's one of the few countries in Asia that I actually need a visa to to go to. Mm -hmm. So like mm -hmm. I didn't need a visa to like most of the other countries around China, uh, but Japan I needed one. So it, it takes some time and, and stuff. So right, um, but you you knew the language. So when you got there. You, you were you could speak Japanese um, so I, I'm thinking that like the, 
the language was not a big challenge in the beginning, but you had other challenges. For example, you could speak. Could you also read uh, Japanese? Could you also write in Japanese? And what other challenges did you have when you moved to Japan? Yeah, so I was very fortunate and um, probably didn't realize it for a while how fortunate I was to be going to Japan, speaking it, being able to read it and write it. So when I say write it, I should clarify that there was a time where I could write it by hand. I can no longer do that. And of course, my Japanese is far more, my written and reading <laughs> uh, comprehension of Japanese is, is certainly worse than it was back in, in those days. Um, yeah, spoiler alert is that I've since met my wife who's Japanese, so we speak it at home a lot. <laughs> so I actually do get to practice it daily. But, um, but there in Japan, I was fortunate to be able to go and already speak the language. I was in university, I think I took the JLPT2 test. So basically it's a JLPT, Japanese language proficiency test. Uh, so that's the main test there. And it was originally four levels. So four being the lowest, one being the top. So I took the second one. Then now they have a new system since then, many years ago now, uh, that's in, in one, in two, in three, in four, in five. So they have a fifth level at the bottom. But now, basically, I took in one when I was in Japan. I took it twice. And actually, I took it once in university as well. So basically, on my third try, I finally passed that. Um, I, I did do a lot of studying for that as well. So I shouldn't say that I just arrived and suddenly I could do it. I, I was taking lessons. And what was difficult from a Japanese speaking perspective and comprehension perspective was all of the honorific uh, business discussion. I mean, not just in terms of the, the specific words, so the terminology, ter terminology, but also the formality. So I really had to learn how to be more, I don't know, when talking to seniors, be able to put myself lower in terms of the way I was speaking. Because really, and typically, when you learn in school, you learn this kind of maybe slightly more polite, but like a base level in the middle of just having normal daily conversation. But when you're in an office environment, there's certain things you need to say, there's certain greetings, everything like that. So being able to put yourself below that, speaking upward um, from a humble position to your manager, being able to understand those dynamics and be able to communicate was a big learning for me. So I took extra lessons from a tutor on that. In terms of my other challenges though, I think the biggest one was honestly to be able to make good friends in Japan. And especially now that I've lived in a couple of other places, I can see how it was difficult, more difficult than I experienced in Germany or now in Portugal. The reason for that is that Japanese people were more difficult to get to know. Of course, if you have a connection, if you have an in, which for me was people that I knew from my study abroad to Singapore. There was a Japanese lady that I knew there that then I met up with her and then she introduced me to her friends. And of course I had Japanese language uh, classmates that, from university that were now living there. So I had that in as well. But with, without the in, it's very difficult to break into the circle and become you know, considered part of it. You're still kind of held at an arm's reach, like arm's length away. Um, and so that was really hard with the locals and other expats while there are a ton of them in Tokyo, it can also be difficult to get to know them. So in my case, I had coworkers that were fellow expats. What I didn't know until I got there was that I was one of the youngest, if not the youngest on the team. And as a result, other people had spouses, children, whatever the situation is, or just not really in the mood to go out and, you know, socialize too much after work. 
So I was a bit left on my own there. And I think it just took a long time to build up those friendships. I still made some great ones, but I had to work at it. It took time. A lot of those didn't work out. And now that I look back at it a few years removed, I can see how much better my friendships are in other places that I've lived. Wow, that's that's crazy because um, it's, yeah, like, I mean, you could speak the language. So I was just assuming that like, well, it's, it will be easy to, you know, integrate with the locals, but it's true. It's not, there is, I mean, you look different. Like, I mean, that, that was what I had in China. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, immediately they know you're not Japanese, of course, you know? Right. Um, so, and of course there's a cultural barrier. You mentioned like speaking, uh, your boss is here and then there, there's always like how you speak and the tone and everything. Wow, that's that's crazy. Um, but <laughs> it was but a lot. It, it was, it a, was lot. a lot, yeah. right? Yeah. And on top of that, like you know, there is the whole different cuisine. There's a different, you know, weather. I don't know about the weather in Tokyo, right. uh, but I can imagine. And and there's like it's the largest urban area in the world, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, I think so. So it's still that. Like I mean, you were from you. You can't. You went from San Francisco to Tokyo, like, I can imagine, like, the shock, you know, at first, yeah. so that's amazing, and what about the, what would you say, like, were the pros and cons, now, looking back, someone who's thinking about moving to Tokyo, to Japan, to work there, what would you say are the pros and cons of living in Japan? The pro is definitely, it's hard to describe to people unless they visited, but that's what I'd always tell folks, is when I was really, I was so passionate about Japan, and about Japanese culture and language, So people would ask me, what is it about Japan? And I said, have you been there before? They said, no. I said, okay, go visit, come back, and then we can have a talk about it. <laughs> you know, uh, so it's very hard to describe in words, except that I would say it's probably the furthest that you can get from your typical Western quote unquote culture, you know, Western world culture, um, while still being in an extremely industrialized, but extremely safe um, first world country. I mean, maybe that sort of statement is up for debate. Um, you could say that about maybe a few countries. Of course, China is massively different as well. But just the amount of safety, the amount of comfort, like the crazy technology stuff, even though what you realize is that it's a little bit all for show. <laughs> like they have robots and they have this and that, but it doesn't really affect your daily life. And actually everyone's still using stamps that they have to use to when you're working in an office if you need to get something signed off on everyone has to stamp it they send it all over the country to get the original document stamped by five different people even if somebody's on vacation or going on a work trip it, it's a it's kind of a nightmare and then i was remembering that very that the very point where i got off the plane there was a guy you know just outside uh waiting to show me some apartments and things like kind of a relocation help helper consultant guy that was hired by my company And I went to the ATM to pull out some cash and I realized at some point that I had pulled out $500 worth. And, and I was like, or, or actually maybe the bill was, I think the bill might've been for a hundred dollars worth. I think that's what it was. So I had a couple of those and I was like, is anyone going to accept this? Is anyone going to take this bill? This bill is gigantic. How am I ever going to get change for this? And then the guy laughed and truly from that point forward, when you actually try to use it, everyone can exchange it. <laughs> they break down these bills and um, that just was also a shock to me. So, you know, the, the, so much of what you see about Japan anyway uh, from the outside is so different and so interesting. And so I think exploring all that is fantastic. Of course, the downsides also outside of 
the fact that maybe that's more on a surface level. So again, the technology is not really there in the same way that you might hope. Uh, and I also think that, well, what you see as a tourist as well is everyone's so nice, everyone's so helpful, so positive, really great. And, and yes, the people there are very welcoming. However, it is a bit surface level. And to get past that, that's the hard, the hard part to break into. That's the hard part to really get past to make a true close friend that you can really, you know, like I said, I, I had those friend issues making friends. Um, but besides that, what I loved about it was just getting lost in the streets. Like I would just go walking and I'd walk for half an hour, an hour longer, just going in and out of this place, walking into a pachinko parlor, <laughs> going into different parts of town. And I just love that feeling of getting lost on my own. And of course, luckily with a phone, being able to find my way back if I got too lost. But that's what I love about moving to every country and every new place or even taking a trip to travel is that I don't, if I don't know where I am, it's fun to figure it out. And I felt like Japan had so much of that and you find your favorite spots. You find different subcultures going on. For me, it was, uh, I really love live music. I love going to concerts. I love um, like rock and metal music. And so I found some friends that were doing that and they had their own bands. So I'd go to those band shows, meet more people. And it was like 20 or maybe at max 50 people in the packed into this small little room, <laughs> like a sound a sound stage, practically like a little practice space, you know, and just like putting on a show of five bands for 10 bucks. And it's just that kind of thing was so fun. And um, man, I just have so many good memories of that time. So I absolutely loved it. But I do think on top of that, the culture was a challenge, not just personally, but also in the business setting. And ultimately, maybe we'll get to it a little bit later, but that's ultimately what led me to leave was some of the challenges of finding good opportunities for work and dealing with the Japanese business culture, which can be quite, um, quite different from American culture for business. Let's put it that way. Okay. Interesting. That's because, yeah, I was going to ask you, why did you decide to leave? Uh, but okay. It's just that, um, you spent two years there and then, right. uh, different from a lot of other expats, I'm sure you met a lot of them in Japan who go there and teach English, you know, uh, which was my case in Asia. Like you were not working um, in the English language teaching industry. It was a different industry. So you just mentioned like you had trouble with the cultural background. So could you say like why after two years, why did you decide to leave Japan? Yeah, so it was not... Uh immediate sort of putting my foot down about it. It took a while to get to that point. And what I can try to describe is kind of how it was working in my job. So I was fortunate to get a position there in originally in growth marketing, but then moving into product management, again, what I was doing in San Francisco. And uh, it was on a two person team. Essentially, we, we used a lot of outsourced help from development and marketing and so forth. So it was really the two of us in Tokyo working on this project for uh, a Japanese company, a global international Japanese um, headquartered company. And so after doing that for some months, uh, actually for the first year, it was great. I thought this is awesome. Like, I can't believe that I lucked out. <laughs> there were a lot of challenges. I, I can get into that too. But overall, I thought I'm in here in Japan. I'm learning a lot. I'm getting a ton of responsibility, probably more than I deserve based on the experience that I've had in, in my career so far. And yet after that one, at that one year point, the guy who I was working with, who was a product manager at the time, gave his notice and said he was leaving the company. 
So suddenly I became a team of one on a global product. Wow. And then not too long after that, the company purchased a, another company with an app, a similar app uh, based in the US in Boston. And as a result, the real question became, well, who's going to manage this now? Is it this, this guy, this team of one <laughs> in Tokyo or a team of 40 with a lot of people and experience in Boston? And it was, of course, decided that Boston would take it. And I decided that I didn't want to move to Boston. Not anything wrong with the city, but I was not looking to move back to the United States. I had worked so hard to get abroad. So it became a process of me looking for that next job. And I looked for months. I took so many interviews, ones that looked good on paper, other ones that didn't look so good. But I, from as you said, a lot of people go to Japan and they're teachers or the translators or they're just doing something with Japanese or with their native tongue, probably English. And I think it's great that people can do that and have that first stepping stone in Japan. I would recommend that to listeners or watchers of this to be able to say, that's a great way to start your experience in Japan and hopefully use that as a launching pad into doing something else if you want to do something else, if, if teaching is not your long-term career path. However, for me, I never wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I've tried it in other contexts. It just isn't for me from a professional standpoint. And so I really wanted what I was doing to be progressing my career. And so as a result, I was very particular about the types of roles that I was looking for. And after many months of applying, not getting another bite, getting close to getting an offer here, close to getting an offer there, trying Japanese startups, foreign startups, I felt like, you know, I was tapping into all the networks that I could. I just couldn't find that next role. And uh, at that time, I was also thinking, I really loved Berlin when I visited after I got laid off in that trip in 2014. And I heard that there were English speaking roles there. So I thought, let me just put out my feelers, you know, try to reach into my network, see what opportunities are, do some research. And long story short, the first company I applied to in Berlin, I got an offer from. And so it was kind of like, okay, Maybe it's time to go. So that's that's the big picture. Um, other people are able to make make it successfully in Japan long term by continuing to do English teaching or, or some variant of it, or learning a totally different skill set, or frankly being much more open in the type of roles that they would be able to get. But I was quite particular, and as a result, my career led me to other places. So, uh, so you left Japan and went straight to Berlin, or you went to the U.S. and then Berlin. So, so I actually, funny enough, I gave notice of my Japanese company while I was already interviewing for jobs in Berlin. I just knew that I was either going to, again, I was either going to have to go to, uh, to Boston for the company, or I was going to have to do something completely different. I had finished up another project there. The one that I, the main one that I was supposed to be working on was already being transferred to Boston. Maybe I could have, I also had an annual contract. So I, it was coming up for renewal in December. I didn't know if it would be renewed again if I didn't decide to go to Boston or I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to be doing there. So I just said, I took the proactive step and I said, I'm going to leave. I hope it's not back to the United States, but I hope it's to, to Berlin. I was interviewing for some jobs there, but I gave my notice in Japan. My plan was to go for six weeks to Germany. And when I was there to be doing like four weeks, I think it was of networking and interviewing. So I was setting up all these interviews. And also then two weeks of Oktoberfest with some friends. <laughs> so <laughs> of course, mixing work, work and play. Um, and what ended up happening was I gave my notice and a few days later, I got a call or, or an email from that company that I had applied, one of them that I applied to, the first one. And they basically were like, yeah, so we're ready to give you an offer. 
I was like, okay, uh, send over the details. Let's see. And everything, everything looked good. And I was like, it's going to be much easier for me to turn this into a one-way trip than it is to be a round trip that I go and feel it out. Maybe they get cold feet. They don't keep the offer there. Maybe other companies don't give me an offer. So it was just kind of, and, and then to find storage space, because basically my flat was also tied to the company that I just gave a notice at. So trying to move my stuff into storage and then out of, you know, it was just way too complicated. So I thought, here's my opportunity to get to Berlin. It's what I wanted to do. Perfect. Sign on the dotted line. And yeah, my round trip became a one way. So I went straight to Berlin. Crazy. That's crazy. Like going <laughs> from North America to Asia and then straight to Europe. That's yeah. crazy, man. Um, yeah, the you said that you went to Japan. You went back to Japan in 2019. Is that right? Yeah. So that's actually just the the reason for that was to get legally married to my wife. So you can do that in Japan on a tourist visa. Of course, she's Japanese, but it didn't matter. I think I think anybody can just go and do it. Obviously, the whole process is in Japanese. You get a Japanese document, but I think it's it's legally possible for anyone to take a trip and get married in japan if you really? want to <laughs> i think don't quote me on it like you know, <laughs> please everyone out there do your do your do your work obviously uh like my my wife's um you know mom and family helped you know get things set up but but yeah that was basically the reason so i got to see some old friends got to go to the old places in tokyo then i went to we went to see her family and get the document basically it wasn't you know a big ceremony it was literally at the city hall <laughs> just oh. waiting there getting a couple stamps on a document and then we left <laughs> getting yeah. the right stamps yeah that's yeah. that that's so similar to uh the stamp thing it's so it's the same thing in china like you mm. need the correct in that in their case like the right stamp without it like it can be literally a piece of paper with like you know but if there is a red stamp there it's a important document without the stamp oh, yeah. it means nothing uh maybe i don't know maybe it's an asian thing uh the, the stamp Probably. thing right right um so then you you of course you moved to berlin and then you i know you got to you, you moved then to like both to portugal which is right. going to be another episode but just to finish the, your japan story um you went there last time in 2019 but if you could go back there again what would be like the first thing you do you know what would be your perfect day in japan <laughs> Oh man. I mean, there's so much food that I would have to consume. So if it were a perfect day and I had an endless appetite, I'm sure <laughs> I would have, you know, well, so one of the things, I guess I can say one of the things that I love is Japanese curry. And luckily that's something that you can, like there's an Asian market here. So we're able to get the, the cubes, the blocks to be able to make it here. So I don't, I don't miss that like crazy because I get it frequently, but that's something that I would love to have in Japan. Again, they, always like the best the best mix um but of course the ramen and everything else and then yeah if i was in tokyo i would um definitely try to meet up with one of my close friends there it's like you know basically i would say the only one of the only if not the only person that i've managed to really stay close with after my time in japan which is a shame to say like i said it was difficult to make friends there and a lot of those relationships have since kind of gone by the wayside it happens when you move across the world. But on the other hand, I feel like I've managed to keep these relationships in Berlin, despite now being in Portugal quite close, um, obviously more recent as well. Um, so I definitely try to see him in a night out in the town. During the day, definitely go to, there's some cool areas in Japan and Tokyo in particular, like um, Shimokitazawa, 
is this really cool area. Um, it, you just kind of walk around. It's got a lot of hip shops. I mean, you know, nothing special. Not that I'd go out and probably buy anything, but just going into different little stores, art art boutiques, um, uh, you know, clothing stores, all kinds of different little stuff. Maybe go to the game arcade, play some games, get some, uh, you know, something out of the claw machine. <laughs> you know, uh, just just soaking it in, to be honest, just walking as much as I could um, in the city. And then, yeah, like going out with my friend in Shinjuku and Golden Guy is the name of this kind of area where they have all these really old bars uh, from like the 1950s. And it's become a real tourist destination in a way that, I mean, maybe isn't ideal based on when I was there at the beginning. It kind of has, I think they realized at first it was in some of the bars, it was difficult, if not, not uh, possible to get into some of the bars as a foreigner. Even if you speak Japanese, like that was just the way that it was. Most of them, it was fine, but there were some that were a little edgy around having new people come in. Now it seems like they've embraced the, the sort of tourist destination landmark kind of nightlife thing, you know, for better or worse. I'm glad that they're doing well, but it's still such a cool area. You go in there and it's a bar that fits eight people. I mean, they're literally next to each other. Um, and maybe you have to pay a cover fee, like an entrance fee. Some of them you don't. And it may come with like a little, you know, snack or something, but you order a drink and not that the drinks are amazing, but it's just, it's got all this crazy stuff on the wall, like maybe a disco ball. And then every, every one of them has a different theme, or like a different feel or vibe. And some of them are more, you know, very much like themed about something and other ones are just more relaxed or more, you know, electronic music or, so I love these kind of places. So Golden Guy is really cool. And, um, yeah, I think just, again, like the huge skyscrapers, the big lights, the the big displays, just taking it all in, you know, throughout the day. I think that would be my main priority. And then sleep in a capsule hotel, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, if I could afford more, I'm, I'm not sure if I would pick that one. But, you know, uh, uh, this is a good point, though. So a major thing that my wife and I did when we went on that trip in 2019 is that we made sure the places that we stayed, the hotels, had uh, a bathhouse, an onsen. So that we could go, like, you go into the, the bath, it's super hot, you know, you, it was actually on the top floor of the hotel. So then if you, if you're inside, you can't really see so much outside, there's the windows there, but then you can open the, the, win the door windows, and then you go outside and it was just like cold, you know, nice and chilly, but then you get in the warm water and you're looking out across Neo Tokyo, like in Akira, you know, anime style, like it just, it, it looks like a different world. And maybe people have been to Hong Kong know what I'm talking about, but that kind of like skyscrapers everywhere sort of feel. And yeah, it felt, it's just such an amazing experience. Like I, I get chills thinking about it, but it's hard to describe over, over audio, <laughs> but yeah. just that, it, that experience of like going to the, it's not, it's not like a traditional bathhouse, but it's just a bathing, you know, a Japanese bathhouse, I guess the best way to put it, but like a general public bathing area for like you, you, you know, wash outside in the not outside outside but like outside the bath in the, the shower and then you go in there and everyone's just sitting in the warm water together just soaking it in and it just feels incredible like afterward it's like the best sleep of your life <laughs> so just experiencing that i miss that because it, they don't have that in germany or, or anywhere here in europe is that is that like a japanese spa or not 
or just kind above? of it it's kind of like a korean spa as well i mean i guess yeah. it's a kind of similar thing but the, the, the big difference though is that you sit in the, the hot water and it's not like a dry sauna like you sit in hot water you're clean you've already cleaned yourself so everyone's already you know gone through the shower but then you just sit there and you just soak it in and you stay there as long as you can handle it <laughs> i guess it's pretty hot yeah yeah no um because I'm asking you because I, I went to I went a couple of times to like a Korean spa in China. Like it was really mm -hmm. popular there. But then it's like you're separate. Like you cannot go with your wife to the same. Yeah, rooms. yeah, it's separate. It's separate. Oh, yeah. so it's the same. So it's it's Sorry, very similar yeah. to Korean spa, yeah. right? Yeah, I think so. I, I've been to a Korean spa once or twice. So and that was in LA in like the Korea town. So I don't I have been to Korea, but I didn't do that when I was just visiting there. So I'm not sure exactly if it's the same, but I just wanted to highlight that it's different in the sense that you're sitting in the hot water as opposed yes. to like a steam, a steam house, you know, which is just a different experience. Yes, yes. You had, um, so in China, you had like, I think four different pools and then you could choose the temperature, but then they say go from the, you know, average one to the hottest one and then go slowly if you cannot handle it just you know go back to the other one right they explain all of that and then you can also pay for extra service like you can get foot massage body mm -hmm. scrubbing and stuff like that i loved going to these spas these korean spas in china because yeah as you said like i would sleep just like you know ah <laughs> uh, yeah i loved it um but okay let's let's talk about what you're doing now so yeah. um i uh we found each other i mean you sent me an email because you're you you have your own podcast called Expert Empire, and you have your business there in Porto. So, can you explain what exactly you do, and how can people find you? How can you help people who are thinking about moving abroad? Yeah, definitely. So, as you said, the main point there is helping people to move abroad. So, for me, uh, as I talked about, I tried to get to Japan for so many years, and during that time, I tried many different routes. So eventually, it happened, as we talked about today. But I was always looking for a mentor or someone to help me to make it happen. And whether that's services or a coach or something, like I was just searching for anybody. I was like, I remember trying to reach out to this guy at my university on the database, the alumni database, who was in Japan, according to his profile there, like three times in the years that I was <laughs> at university. He never wrote back, but I just like, I was like trying any way I could to find somebody that could help me. And so now that I've done Japan, now that I've done Germany, and now I'm in Portugal, my goal is to be able to help other people in the way that I wanted to be helped. So it started out with, like you said, the Expat Empire podcast, also a book that I wrote about working in Japan called Passport to Working in Japan. And um, that was my way to kind of give back to people that are interested in working there in the way that I was and to share my knowledge and my experiences of living and working there. Um, but also, yeah, we have a meetup here in Porto uh, for Expat Empire Porto for uh, people that want to either visit the city or living here that are looking to meet other people and hopefully more cities in the future. We have blog posts, everything like that at expatempire.com. But most importantly, what we're doing is individualized consulting services. So really helping people where they are now to be able to move where they wanna to move to. We help people moving from anywhere to anywhere. We have people that are working with us from all different backgrounds, from people who wanna become digital nomads or retire abroad or find jobs abroad. And what we can do is to help you think through your visa options, look at different countries and cities that might fit your requirements, um, help with your resume and cover letter and job searching strategies in different countries based on our experiences. We have one-on-one -on -one coaching. We also have a partner network all over the world. 
where these partners can help you to find houses in that country or have immigration lawyers help you in that visa application process. So really from start to finish, no matter where you are in the process, no matter where you're from and where you wanna to move to, our goal is to be able to at least offer a handful of services that will help. So I'd recommend people that are interested to check out our website, expatempire.com. And there you can also, you know, whether you want to schedule a free 30 minute consulting call and we can talk through your situation, your needs, your wants and how we can help you to achieve them. Or of course, if you wanna get our free ebook, top 10 tips for moving abroad, you can download it right on the website. So we'd love to hear from anyone that's interested. Great, great. I'll leave everything here in the show notes. Um, and I just wanted to say before we finish that I was listening to your podcast and you have there, I was so jealous. You have the, one of my favorite, uh, the host of one of my favorite um, podcasts, which is the, A Bittersweet Life. Ah, yes, that was a recent uh, one, yeah. It was, you had Tiffany or Katie? Yes, Tiffany. Tiffany. Yeah. Tiffany. Oh, I was just listening to it and I was like, oh my God, like just her voice. Like I love uh, the bitter, A Bittersweet Life and I loved your interview with her because um, of course uh, their podcast, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit different. And then Right. It, it was great to see her in another context, like in your context, in your podcast. So I love that interview. Um, and of course, you have other people there that I also follow. So guys, check out uh, the Expat Empire podcast. The link is here below. And yeah, I'll, I'll have you again on the show talking about Porto, Portugal. All right. Thank you very much, David. Thank you so much. For videos about life in different countries, interviews with expats and travel guides, go to youtube.com forward slash ready go expats.